If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 37. We are uh, into the third week of a, uh, a series that um, I originally wanted to call it a series on Joseph, but I quickly realized that really the, the story is about Jacob. And in fact, this is a story about the generations of Jacob. And uh, it's important that we just don't lift Joseph out of the context and, and just think about him as an individual unto himself, but to realize that Joseph is really a, a demonstration of God's covenant love to Jacob. And so that's where we've been. And uh, if you have your Bibles, um, I can't remember the page number in the, in the Pew Bibles. Um, they're under the seat in front of you. But Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So you shouldn't have trouble finding it. Chapter 37, and starting at verse 12. Now his brothers went up to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what became of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell, to, sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood, or dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, 
No, I shall go down to Shoal to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Father, guide us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about the Bible, we mean the whole Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. And whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it matters not. It is the inspired Word of God. One of the aspects of the Word of God that we need to learn and think about is the functionalness or the profitability of the Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is for our good. It's profitable for us. It will equip us for good works and for um, what we need to serve God. We also realize that the Old Testament is beneficial for us in the stories that has been recorded there. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Now these things happened to them. He's referring to a whole variety of things that the people of Israel went through. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let, any, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So as we come then to the book of Genesis and are considering the, the generations of Jacob, and there is so much in the Psalms, particularly about the God of Jacob, nothing about the God of Joseph, we realize that it's not just a great story, which it is, but it is the inspired Word of God given to you and I for our instruction and for our profit. And it is a love story. It is a story of the redeeming love of God and the promise-keeping God that is revealed in the Word of God to us. It's a story of providence. That's what I've been wanting us as a congregation to wrestle with and grapple with for a number of weeks as we head into this. Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all, his, and all their actions. There is no person and there is no action that God does not guide and direct in every single corner of this world, even up to the space lab that's circling around this world. God governs and guides all actions and all his creatures. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, God upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. What I'm wanting us to grasp and see, and what I think the uh, account of Genesis helps us understand is, this is the God of providence, who is guiding and directing all circumstances, all events, all acts, all human decisions to bring about his purposes for his glory. So let me quickly make a couple comments about the text. I'm not going to sort of do it in a way that I normally do, um, and it'll make sense to you, I hope. Just a, a couple um, comments, though, about the text before I make three points about providence. First, there's a geographical journey in this text. It starts in Hebron, and then it moves to Shechem. 
that's about 80 kilometers. So if you know the island of all, that is from Parksville to a little bit past Courtney. So Joseph or Jacob sent his son Joseph on this 80 kilometer trek to go to Shechem to see how his other sons were doing. Secondly, there is the trip from Shechem to Dothan. That's another 12 kilometers. So that's like from here to Lanceville, give or take a few kilometers. And then there's two different journeys that are taken at Dotham. One, there is the journey back to Hebron to tell the story of the death of Joseph, the false death of Joseph. And the other is the story around the coast and down to Egypt where Joseph will be taken by the slave traders. There's also a verbal journey in this story. And if you like to um, uh, attach ideas on uh, sort of verbs, then there are three verbs which open up the story. One is Jacob sent Joseph and all the implications behind that sending. The second is the brothers saw Joseph. Uh, and the third is that the brothers sold Joseph. So there's a verbal journey that takes place in these verses that you can uh, go back and read and attach some things through. The three sections of the book, that just some comments that pull out of the text. Last week we wrestled with, if you were here, um, why in the world did Jacob send Joseph into such danger? Why would he have sent his son to Shechem of all places and to his sons whom he must have known had such hatred and jealousy towards him? Secondly, Joseph, after a chance meeting with somebody out in the field, makes his way to Dotham. Just a note about Dotham. Dotham is mentioned also in uh, the book of Kings, 2 Kings. It happens to be the place where Elisha escaped from the king that was searching for him and, uh, and it was going to kill him. And in the morning, he woke up and his servant goes out and he sees this army all around Dothan. And if you know the story, Elijah prayed, God, open his eyes to see the armies of heaven. And around the hillsides were all the armies of God around Dothan. Just a little bit of a fascinating tidbit about Dothan. So we go from Shechem down to Dothan. And I was thinking about this particular story, and there's so many different things we could launch out on, but one of them is, I remember as we were raising our boys and as they were getting older, the sort of the trepidation that we had sending them out on their own as they moved out on their own and wondering, would anybody care for them? Would anybody look after them? Would anybody um, be aware of their comings and goings like we were when they were in our home? And this story clearly reminds us that even when our sons and our daughters are far away, God directs their lives. That is the doctrine of providence, loved ones. And then we have the brothers' treachery in verses 18 to 28, just a few things. Uh, originally, it says in verse 18, they saw him long before he arrived. How did they see him? Well, his robe, this brightly colored robe that was the symbol of their father's peculiar love for him. They saw him a long way away as he was making his way to them and it gave them time to plot his death. And so it says, as they saw him, they plotted to kill him. Remember the phrase that they used there, it says, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into a pit, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Remember, and I just want to remind us of this, this is their attempt to thwart the sovereign work of God. They heard the dreams, they knew exactly what the dreams meant, and this was their attempt to say, God, you do not rule our lives, we do. And so by their decision to kill him and throw him in a pit, what they were saying is, we will determine our future, not God. 
Now, don't think this is just Joseph's brothers that do that. We do that all the time. We wrestle with the sovereignty of God. We wrestle with the providence of God. How many of you have wrestled with election? How many of you really say in your heart, I can't believe in a God who elects sovereignly from the foundation of the world people who will come to faith in Christ? We fight his sovereignty and salvation. That's just one area in which we fight his sovereignty, but it's all over the pages of our lives. Rather than come to a humble, obedient submission to the way and the working of God. We have Reuben, the oldest brother, who decides he's going to come to the rescue. He's the oldest brother. He had a responsibility for all of his brothers. Is he acting out of guilt? Remember, he had had a, an incestuous relationship with one of his father's wives. And so we wonder if there's his guilt, and this is his way of atoning for his action. And so he says, listen, I'm going to deceive my brothers, and we'll get them thrown in the pit. And then when they're not looking, I'm going to sneak back, I'm going to rescue Joseph, and I'm going to take him back to my dad. That in it was also another attempt to thwart the sovereignty of God. What about Joseph? When he came, he says, they stripped off his robe and threw him in an empty cistern. This was not just a happy, oh, Joseph, let's just help take this coat off of you. This would have been a vicious attack on one that they hated. And likely they would have torn the coat to shreds as they ripped it off their brother. It was a way of dethroning him. It was a way of saying, you will not reign over us. It was a way of saying, you will not have the rights of first inheritor in our family. And so they ripped this uh, robe off of him, and they threw him into a cistern. This would not have been a pleasant journey. Six to 20 feet, somewhere in there, bouncing all the way down, hitting the bottom. Who knows how he hit? This was a rough and aggressive attack on their youngest or on their second youngest brother. And maybe they were hoping for a long, painful death of starvation rather than a quick death of drowning. And then notice one of the most brutal, brutal lines that we have come across so far in this story. They sat down and ate. They had thrown him in the pit, and then verse 25 says, they sat down to eat. There's only one other place in Scripture where we find such a callous response that I'm aware of, um, the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, you might remember the account of that story, how Haman had plotted against the Jews, how he just had developed again a hatred for the Jews. And he had determined that he was going to have every single one of them across the kingdom slaughtered. And so he had uh, got the king to sign a decree, and that decree had gone out to all of the kingdom. And as the city was in confusion... It says that the king and Haman sat down to drink. How callous. How strong is their hatred towards their brother. Ironic that the next time they would actually share a meal together, Joseph would be the head at the head table. And then we have Judah who steps up to the plate here. He now exerts his leadership, and he says, listen, let's not kill him. We don't want to have our brother's blood on our hands. Let's sell him. That's way better than killing him. Go figure. And then it says, as the traders came along, they pulled Joseph up and out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, and the slave traders took Joseph to Egypt. I don't know if you've noticed in these verses, there is no mention of emotion in Jacob at all, or Joseph at all. There's not a word spoken by Joseph recorded at all in this whole series of events that unfolds around him. I think that's part of the 
emphasis that uh, the writer is trying to say is that he was so maligned, he was so hated that, that, that it's a way of, uh, of God saying he was dying. But then we read in Genesis 42, 21, another side of the picture. The brothers, when they were found out and they knew who Joseph was, they says, we are guilty considering, concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, we did not listen. You get a sense of the callousness as they sat down to eat, as they sold him to the traders, as he begged and as he pleaded and his soul was just racked with anguish and pain as he's being ripped away from everything that he knows and everyone that he loves. And he's been sold as a slave, not having a clue what his future would have. And they ignored all of it. Then we have verses 29 to 32, the brother's deception. Deception is prominent throughout this particular account of the story. We have Reuben's grief as well. What am I going to do? As he thought of his own reactions and his own responses and his own responsibility as the elder brother. They hatched this plot. And Jacob's earlier deception with Esau and his father Isaac is going to come back on him in the same way with a coat and a goat. And they take Joseph's ripped coat and they dip it in the blood of a goat and they send it back to their father. Notice they didn't even have the courage to go themselves. They sent it ahead of them to their father. Examine it. Just as Isaac had examined Jacob when he came to steal Esau's birthright, he felt his arm and he smelt the, the, the robe on him and he says, you know, it's got the... He's got the feel of, uh, um, of his brother, but he smells like his other brother. Examine it. He must have been devoured. Is this your son's robe or not? And then we have the father's grief. The grief in this passage is extraordinary. His response to the presumed death of his son, he tore his clothes, great anguish. He put on sackcloth up to his loins, incredible discomfort. He rejected any attempt to console and to comfort him. He was so hammered and so blown up by the grief of losing his son. He said, I will die mourning. And then we have the young boy's trauma. Meanwhile, Joseph is sold as a slave to a foreign country. You get a really, you get a picture, don't you, that there's much more going on than just Joseph here. God's doing something in Jacob's life. God's doing something in Judah's life. God's doing something in Reuben's life. God's doing something in Joseph's life. This is, remember, the generations of Jacob. So three comments about providence. And I, I want us to wrestle with providence. And, and so I'm, I'm layering these three views of providence into this text. The first is the providence of God does not leave us unaffected by events in and around our lives. The providence of God does not leave us unaffected by events that happen in and around our lives. In other words, providence does not mean that we escape pain or adversity in life. And in particular, providence does not mean that we have a way out of the pain of grief. I want to carefully unpack a few things about grief this morning. Grief is a complex set of emotions and physical realities that 
come to bear on our lives. As a church, we have borne an incredible amount of grief in the last number of months, and some of you are walking very freshly through grief. It is painful. It is hurtful. It is crushing. And I was thinking about this in the providence of God and the, and the presumed death of Joseph, and I wonder in my head, did Jacob ever regret sending Joseph out to see his brothers? Oh, if I had him to do it all over again, I wouldn't have let Joseph go. I wouldn't have sent him, because look at what has happened. As he blames himself and he's, as he takes the, the death of his son onto himself and bears responsibility for it. Did Jacob take for granted that he would see his son in a few short weeks with a report back from her brothers, never knowing that this would be the last time that he would see him, never knowing that, in fact, it would be 22 years later that he would finally cast his gaze on his son. I think one of the things that makes grief so gut-wrenching is the thievery behind grief. And grief is described in a few places of the Bible like a thief. It comes in and it steals from us the things that we value and the things that we appreciate most. It's secrety. It comes when we least expect it, and it takes away from us the things that we most value. And grief is deeply emotional. You see here in, in Joseph's or Jacob's life the anguish the, as he tears his clothes, the the, the physical pain that he cannot enjoy the comforts of life while his son is dead. How he has days of lamenting in his heart as the sorrow just keeps coming in wave after wave after wave. And for years it would be unrelenting as he said, I will go down to my grave mourning. To Jacob, it was impossible for him from a purely human perspective to make sense of the death of Joseph. It would be a lifelong body blow to him. But loved ones, is there not some help in understanding that Joseph's death was not the result of a random set of circumstances? And neither was it something that God couldn't have prevented because he could have, and in Joseph's case, he did. See, the telling of the death of Joseph makes it clear that death did not catch God off guard. It was, in fact, how God would ultimately fulfill his purposes. And so as we think about mourning, as we think about grief, I am not for a moment suggesting that we do not mourn, and we do not mourn deeply when we face death. Nor am I suggesting that we walk up to death with a stoic face and say, give me your best shot. What I am suggesting is that we wrestle with our grief through the grid of the providence of God who holds our very breath in his hand, who determines the whole course of our lives, who numbers each one of our days before ever we have lived one of them. And as we wrestle with God in the loss of a loved one, can we say, I don't understand it. I am full of pain, but I trust your providence, O oh God. Secondly, the providence of God does not negate the real impact of our thoughts and decisions and our responsibility for those actions or our struggle against sin. That's a lot of words. 
I'm trying to say there that the providence of God does not fail because of our sin, and nor does the providence of God let us off the hook for responsibility for our sin. You see, sometimes when we wrestle with the providence of God or the sovereignty of God in Christian circles, we, we, say, we seem to reason this way. Well, if God is directing and to guiding all things, and then my actions, good or bad, are already determined. And so I will just ride life out on the wings of fatalism or determinism. Whatever will be, will be. I can't do anything and I'm not accountable for anything because God has determined it all. There's an old story about a man who carried the doctrine of God's providence to such an extreme that he drifted into a sort of divine fatalism. One day, walking down a flight of stairs, he carelessly stumbled and fell headlong to the bottom of the staircase. Picking himself up, he gingerly felt his bruises and then said to himself, well, I'm glad that's over. That's not the way that we approach the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. This account exposes one sin after another, with the main theme in this particular text being deception and lying. And the emphasis on deception is an obvious part of the story. In fact, it's been part of this family for generations. It had been uh, 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 Abraham who had, had told his wife to lie. It, it, had, it had been Isaac who had told his wife to lie. And Jacob, after all, is nicknamed Deceiver. Deception seems to be part of the DNA of this particular family. Apparently, the brothers thought that they could hide their hatred and their jealousy. The brothers deceived themselves by thinking they could thwart the plans of God. Reuben had a deceptive plan to save Joseph when his brothers weren't looking. Reuben deceived his father by sending a report to him about the supposed death of his uh, of son. The, the boys deceived their fathers with goat's blood in the robe. Deception is everywhere in this text. And yet, as we look at this family, God demonstrates that he works through our sin and our sinful actions to bring about his purposes. God is not thwarted by sin. And we are not let off the hook because God is a sovereign, providential, working God. So here in Genesis 37, our hearts, our own hearts are exposed as we witness ten boys determined to frustrate God's purposes. Let us see what becomes of his dreams when he's dead. The truth about the providence of God is that, it, that, that God does bring about his purposes even through the sinful acts of men and women. Now, don't for a moment think that we can entertain the notion that because God's plans are worked out through my sinful actions or the sinful actions of humankind, that I am not responsible for my sin or that my sin does not grieve God or that it doesn't matter. I am responsible for my sin, and I will be held accountable for my sin, but my sin does not thwart the glory of God and the providence of God. Maybe we'll have occasion a little bit later in this story to wrestle with this dynamic in Scripture of the sovereign providential purposes of God in our lives and in our world on the one hand, and on the other hand, our very real responsibility for our thoughts, intentions, actions, words, and deeds. But what I want us to see this morning, at least from this text, is that evil and sin do not thwart the purposes of God. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good.
There's a story, not a story, an account in the book of Acts where Peter and John were released from prison and they were warned that they ought not to go and tell anybody about Jesus anymore, that they just needed to shut up and go about their life and they were beaten and then they were threatened not to speak about God any longer. They gathered together to pray because they felt compelled to speak the word of God. And part of their prayer was this, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth gathered themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They realized that, that even though evil was behind the death of Jesus, that was God's plan and that was God's purpose. And look at the glory and the amazing result of the resurrection of Jesus. And then they said, and now, Lord, grant, or now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Evil and sin could not hold back the plan and the purposes of God. Loved ones, God is sovereign. His providence cannot and will not be frustrated by our failure to act or by our sinful actions. God still holds us accountable for the very sins that he uses to accomplish his purpose. This is everywhere taught in the Bible. And yet nowhere does the Bible try and reconcile them. And then finally, not only do we see the providence of God as a framework through which to understand grief, not only do we understand the providence of God to not be thwarted by our sins, and yet we are still held responsible for our sins, but the providence of God unfolds both over great lengths of time and right before our eyes. At just the right time. Have you ever heard that phrase? At just the right time. You know, somebody walked in the door, at just the right time I, I, I happen to be in this place. And we sometimes, unfortunately, think it as chance or fluke or fatalism or determinism, but the Bible said, no, there is no such thing as at just the right time without God absolutely intervening at that time. Sometimes there are times in which the providence of God unfolds right before our eyes with speeds that are almost incomprehensible. What I want us to wrestle with and to learn and to reaffirm is that learning to trust God means that we accept his control not only over the big events of our lives in the world, but also the very, very tiny events. It means that we affirm his governance over eternity as well as the nanoseconds that guide and direct my life. So let's look at a few from this text. At just the right time. At just the right time, Joseph is wandering around in a field, and a man, a random Shechemite, comes up to him and says, What are you doing in this field? At just the right time, the man heard the brothers say, We're going to go down to Dotham. At just the right time, we realize that Dotham is the main trading route and not Shechem, through which all the caravans travel. At just the right time, Reuben is overtaken with guilt and tries to intervene 
on the death of his brother and at least prevents it for a period of time. At just the right time, Reuben's own idea of returning Joseph to his father is thwarted. At just the right time, they threw him into a dry cistern, otherwise he would have drowned. At just the right time, Judah has a train or a change of thought as God puts into his head that no, let's not murder him, let's sell him. And if you read through the Bible, you will find time and time and time and time again where God directs the thoughts of mankind. I was just reading in the book of Kings, and I, I should have refreshed my memory, but uh, one of the cities of Israel is surrounded by a massive, massive army, and they have been laying siege to this particular city. And the, the, the famine was so great in the city that uh, they were killing their children and eating their children. And so at the one particular time, there's a few lepers, and they were saying to themselves, well, listen, what's the point? Either we're going to die in the city, or let's go to the enemy and see if they will give us some food. And you remember, they go out to the enemy, just a horde of the enemy, and they get to the camp, and they realize that there's, the camp is empty. And the explanation is that God had put fear into the heads of every single one of the enemy, and they had scattered. And so at just the right time, God put a thought in Judah's head, sell him, don't kill him. Unwittingly, Judah sets in motion a whole series of events that will bring about their own salvation. And meanwhile, we find Joseph is alive, and he's on his way to Egypt. So Genesis 37 reminds me why I pray. I pray because I believe God can send an unidentified man to give directions to a wandering boy. I pray because I believe God can help me or somebody else hear another's personal conversation. I pray because I know that God can delay getting to one destination over another destination so a caravan can come by at just the right time. I pray because I know that God can put it into somebody's head a thought that will bring about salvation rather than destruction. I pray because I believe that God can provide a dry cistern as opposed to a cistern full of water. I pray because I believe that God can send a random caravan to collect one of his own to preserve his church. I pray because I believe that God controls events and can turn them on a dime. And at the same time, I, nor anyone else, in all of this is reduced to fatalism or determinism. Because God is on the throne. God is sovereign. God guides the seen and the unseen. And Joseph's worst day demonstrates this. This is why I am amazed at the saving work of God. We have heard two accounts of the saving work of God. Why did God put Caitlin in the home of Dwayne and Julie? So she would hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. Why did God give Lorne children that he was happened to be babysitting, happened to turn on the TV, happened to hear Billy Graham, and as a result, gave his life to Jesus Christ. 
I pray because God can use the circumstances of our lives to bring about his purposes for his glory. So God is actively at work when everything seems bleak or dark. Scripture calls us to live trusting that in all things God is at work, even when we don't know it or even when it doesn't feel like it. Joseph seems completely unaware of the trouble that he's, that's unfolding all around him. He seems to be oblivious to the danger that he is walking into as he makes his way to Shechem. Who knows what dangers, toils, and snares God's providential guiding has brought you through or will bring you through. Why is it that we are wowed by the miraculous only because we have been spoiled by God's awesome regular providence? Know that God is working in your everyday life. He loves you. He cares for you. Will you trust him? And God works providentially through even the day-to-day -day circumstances of my life. Again, a random man in a field, a conversation at a well, a decision to move from one place to another, a guilty son, a cowardly son, a dry sister. Nothing in life is too small or insignificant for God to see or use to ensure the good of his people and the downfall of their enemies. Loved ones, hope exists because God exists and cares for his people. Father, help us to cultivate a confidence and an assurance in your character and your goodness, in your sovereignty and in your providence. We need to have the truth about you fill our hearts and minds, Father. We need to allow the truth about your sovereignty and your providence to shape our thinking, to shape our living, to shape our acting. Oh, that our hearts could more fully realize that what matters most in life and eternity is not our efforts and our desires, but God's unrelenting mercy to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.